today that as we study Psalm 139, you will gaze in delight at what you see in God's word until you stand in defense over every human life from womb to tomb. And for the lost, if you are not someone who knows Jesus, you've been invited, you're trying to check this Christianity thing out, or maybe you're not even trying to check it out, you're just here, praise God for that. My hope is that the rays of God's word would melt your hard heart and soften you to the Lord Jesus Christ and his salvation. And so we're going to jump in here and get to Psalm 139. Uh, No surprise, we've got plenty to cover. Psalm 139 is actually not ultimately a psalm about the sanctity of human life. It's a prayer. It's a psalm of innocence. And it's David's appeal to a good conscience over and against the slanderous statements, things that were being said about him. And he's testifying to the fact that the Lord knows him. The Lord knows where he's at, what he thinks about. He sees, he knows, he's created David. And thus he's accountable to David, but so is true of every other person. You are known, you are seen, you were created by God and thus accountable to him. And that's kind of how the psalm breaks out. And so what I want to do is take his general idea and attach it to the wonders of the sanctity of human life. And so I'm going to give it to you like this. Here's the big idea for this morning. The sanctity of all human life is established and ultimately vindicated by God. The sanctity of human life is established and ultimately vindicated by God. And we're going to see that as the text unfolds. And it unfolds in four easy to delineate sections, verses 1 to 6, verses 7 to 12, verses 13 to 18, and verses 19 to 24. You are known by God, you are seen by God, you are created by God, and yes, you are accountable to God as well. And I want to show how this proves the sanctity of human life and how it's ultimately vindicated by God. So, First thing you're going to see, and you can jot this down if you would like, you are known by God. The psalmist writes, To the choir master, a psalm of David, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. The Lord doesn't search like we would search. When we're Searching for something, it's because we're ignorant about something and we're alleviating that ignorance by putting in some effort to find something. Like in your attic, when you're looking for something in your house, you're like, where did that go? Or when you've moved from one house to another, you ever had that? Where you're like, we've literally unpacked every single box here. How is it possible that something is still missing? And sure enough, you stuck it somewhere and so you're searching to find it. That's not how God searches. God's searching is exhaustive and it's effortless and he knows it instantly. So when it says you have searched me, don't read that like like you've moved from house to house and you're trying to find something in a box you could have sworn was right there. No, the Lord knows you exhaustively and he knows you effortlessly and he knows you instantly. He's not like a drug dog searching somebody. You know what I'm saying? That's not how the Lord works. He has an unbelievable, the word you would use in theology would be omniscience, all-knowing God. 
And you would think for a God as high and holy and transcendent and awesome as God is, that he wouldn't possibly care about the littlest things going on in your life. But here's the thing. He knows everything about you down to the most mundane detail and even the things you don't actually do, but the things you think mentally. So from mundane to mental, God knows it all. It says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. So I'm doing my hand wrong. Sit down, rise up. Okay? Just realizing that as I was saying it. You were writing notes, though, so it was good. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. When he says from afar, what he's saying is God is holy. God is transcendent. God is big and out there, and yet you know my thoughts This is this amazing reality about who God is, that he is transcendent, and yet he is imminent. I don't know about you, but when I got married, like, Aaron got all up in my grill in a way that, like, was was awesome and yet uncomfortable all at the same time. Like, you know when two lives are coming together that um, you're going to be close, but I don't think you know when you're engaged what that means to actually be living together. Anyone else sense that a little bit? Okay, you don't need to say it out loud. Your spouse can hear you right now. The, The notion is like, this is so awesome, but I'm not comfortable with this right now, right? Because I think there's a mentality, and we're a little bit, let's just be honest, if someone were to know everything about us, we'd be a little bit embarrassed, correct? And if you're not saying yes, you got some weird quirks, okay? And and so there's something, though, about us that, like, even if you're in the marriage relationship, which is the most intimate relationship, you're going, okay, you can have, like, 98% of me, you can know, like, most of the things, but I got to keep two of them. Two weird things I do, you can't know about it, and they're like, they're everywhere, they see you, they know. Or, or even when, like, you know how, like, when you're in a social interaction and, like, you can, like, make a face and you're internally offended, but you find a way to, like, not let everybody know, but your, your spouse knows, you know? And she outs you, you're like, dang it, I was trying to eat that inside, and now you're making, But it's really this awesome thing all at the same time. This is not even close. It's a little glimpse of a picture and to how intimate the knowledge of God is about you. The most intimate relationship on the planet is your spouse, and the knowledge that God has for you blows that out of the water. And knowing us this intimately, what you also need to know about the Lord and what this is implying is that he knows us truly. He has never misjudged you or wrongly interpreted you. How much of our lives is us trying to explain, no, 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 you're not understanding me. That's not what I meant. You're getting my heart wrong. God has never gotten your heart wrong. God has never missed what you were meaning. God has never poorly interpreted you, neither in your intentions or your actions. Nothing has ever been concealed from God. Nothing has ever been surprising to God. He searches out your path. He knows your routines. He knows when you sit down. He's acquainted with all of your ways. Listen to what it says. Even even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Before words are your own, they're foreknown. 
if it's starting to feel a little bit claustrophobic by the first five verses, then you're understanding the heart of the psalm. God is up in your business. More appropriately, you're in his. He's got you hemmed in on every side. It says in verse 5, you hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Sometimes it is just good to remember that you are holy in God's territory. W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy. And you are holy under his sovereign hands. He may seem distant to you. Some may be even in here deluded in sin to believing he does not exist. But Psalm, excuse me, Acts 17, 27 says it so clearly. Yet he is actually not far from any of us. It's an awesome passage. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He is saying, God is near despite what you may feel. And there's really two responses, even in light of the first six verses of Psalm 139. We either take comfort in God's nearness and knowledge of us or we should take caution in God's nearness and knowledge of us. Two responses that ought to be at play here depending on where you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ. You're either taking comfort in verses one to six or you should take caution in verses one to six and you should heed the word of the book of Acts chapter 17 that the times of ignorance God has overlooked. But... Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. This God knows you inside and out. David takes comfort in this knowledge. What say you? David so profoundly impacted, he goes, such knowledge, Lord, is so wonderful, so it humbles me to know this about you, God. But suppose... Suppose you wanted to ditch the omniscient God, and, and if we're honest with ourselves, every one of us at one way, time, place, or another has tried to ditch the omniscient God, has tried to shake off that sense that God knows you that well, that God is that intimately acquainted with your ways. Suppose you actually wanted to try to ditch the omniscient God, and many do try, and I'm sure we've all tried. How does that actually go? The answer is not well, because everything is ultimately in God's presence. And he continues on and says this, number two, not only are you known by God, which would validate the sanctity of all human life, but you are seen by God. If verses one to six are about the omniscience of God on display, verses seven to 12 are about the omnipotence of God. Excuse me, the omnipresence of God. Omnipotence is next. Verses 7 to 12 is about the omnipresence of God. And he goes and says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? I want to, if I needed you, God, if I needed to just sow my oats for 
just a second. Is there a place that I could go to do it? All right, every city has a dump. Is there a place that I can go and get out of your oversight? Implication of an answer? No. There's nowhere to go. It's impossible to be hidden from God's sight, which makes sinning sucky work. Okay? And I thought about it this week. When, when, when we're talking about the presence of God, we're talking about before his face. When we sin, our sin is such a provocation of God. Like, if you were to sin in someone's face, or let's do it this way. If you were to provoke someone to someone's face, face in a rec basketball league, that's the kind of thing you come to church the next week and have to explain why you got a black eye. Does that make sense? Because you got in someone's face, like, what are you going to do about it? And someone's like, bam! And you're like, yeah, I got punched in the face in a rec league. Didn't tell him I was Christian, though. I just lost it a little bit, you know? I don't think we ever think about it that intimately, that our sin, because it's in God's presence, is a provoking of God. It's an undermining of how God's designed things, about how things ought to flourish in line with God's organization and orchestration and creation and the way he'd call us to go as prescribed in his word, and we just forget that and sin right before him. We'll sin in private too, deluding ourselves into thinking God's presence in our lives is like cell phone towers that if you can get far enough away or you can get into a deep enough crevice or you go down dark enough into a cave where he can't see things that he must not have some view of what you're doing. You won't have access to what you're doing. But here's the problem. Your bodies and your brains are ever in his presence and awareness. Okay, but what if I were like, to like just end it, like my life. I, I can't get out of the presence of God. If, if you're saying that no matter where I go, when I exist on this planet, that I can't shake him at any moment, well, well, then maybe I'll consider what about not this life? What about dying? What, what would happen then? What if I were to hit the eject button on this life, right? What if it was just like this Truman Show reality is setting in? You're like, get me out of here. And you decided to do something like that. Notice what verse 8 says. You're not going to shake him even if you were to die. If I ascend to heaven, you are what? There. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Heaven, hell, either place, God's presence is there, albeit differently. God's presence in his grace in heaven, God's presence of his wrath. But don't think as hell as being a place that is absent from God's presence. It's not absent from God's presence. It's just a different effect of God's presence in that place. You go, well, I like superhero movies. I mean, what if I could like beat God somewhere? I mean, the sun rises every morning. Suppose I could get there first. What if I had like superpowers? What if I were like Dash from Incredibles and I could run faster than the speed of light? You know what the speed of light is? Like we used to know, right? 186,000 miles a second. My man, 186,000 miles. I mean, what if I took, when he's saying, what if I took the wings of the morning? He's saying, you know how fast the sun rises on the horizon? You know when you see it, you ever getting up, gotten up that early? Some of us are like, no, that's an ungodly thing to do, get up that early. 
but it's actually an amazing thing to watch the sun rise, and it's rising at the speed that it's incredible to see it happen. And he's like, man, maybe I could do that. Well, listen to what he says. He goes, if I take the wings of the morning, man, at that speed, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, maybe I could go that deep. Maybe I could get one of those scuba tanks that just lets me keep going. I know my patty shirt says 60 feet, but forget that. I'll just go, okay? And we'll go deep and deep and deep. And here's the thing. It doesn't matter how deep you go, and it doesn't matter how fast. Even if you could beat the light coming over the horizon in the morning when you got there, by the way, if you could get there in the kind of speed that could beat the speed of life, you would be gifted that by the Lord himself. He would be giving you that speed to go that fast. And then when you arrived, he'd be waiting there to greet you. He'd be holding you up still. He'd be sustaining you. And mind you, this is someone running from God. The fugitive held in the hand of the Lord. Okay, fine. But but what if, forget all that then. All right, forget the death stuff. Forget all, forget Dash. Forget, what, what if we, what if I just turn out all the lights? You know? I mean, we were playing at a dinner table last night and my niece was like convinced I couldn't see her. She put two pieces of pizza on her eyeballs like this. <laughs> convinced I couldn't see her. Where'd I go, Uncle Scott? Where'd I go? I'm like, you're right here. Are you serious? Come on. What are your parents teaching you? <laughs> Even my son who's seven is like, isn't this hilarious, right? I mean, but we have this ability to like God doesn't see it. Oh, you know what we do sometimes? We know God sees it, but we think he understands our darkness. You know what I'm talking about? So you sin in some way because of something else. Maybe something happened in your life. Maybe your spouse hasn't been good to you, and so you've cheated on them or, or whatever. I'm, I'm trying to talk something more significant, right, where you're like, this is a big thing, but you know what? God understands what I've gone through, and so he sees me in my darkness, and he sees it and understands it almost like it's acceptable. That This text will flip all of that on its head. It says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. Even the darkness is not dark to you. Is literally darkness will not make dark from you. It means darkness, light, it makes no difference to God. It hides nothing. His light exposes everything for what it is. So it's exposing everything for what it is, not just in the sense of when you cut, shut off the lights, he, it, it's irrelevant to the Lord. But also, when you shut off the lights of your own perceived morality and believe things are good where God is clear they're not good, he sees that too. So we can, in other words, play games in our heads and have these different standards of morality that we live by, and God sees right through it. The implication goes both ways. And this is a really serious thing, and so we would do well, as this entire thing is a prayer, to take a second and pray, even on a regular basis, God, grant me sight to see your seeing of me. 
You pray that prayer? God, grant me sight to see your seeing of me. How much would it change of our days? How much would it change of our lives? How much would it change of our outlook if we literally thought about actually living quorum Deo before the face of God? Like, how much would that change us? I want to pray that prayer because he sees us, and I think him seeing us should affect us, should change us, should make us serious about things but maybe we're not as serious about, should make us hunger for things maybe we're not hungering for as much should make us desirous of things that maybe we're not as desirous of. That maybe in God granting us to see his seeing of us, it would give us conviction to repent where we ought to. Remember that repentance, right? A turning from your way, going your own direction, at your own speed, flipping a 180, and now going, you know what, I'm going to go God's way. I could start that repentance by acknowledging that our God is not only omniscient, but he's omnipresent. God, grant us sight to see your seeing of us that it might lead us to the conviction to repent or maybe for some of us the courage to stand, to stand for truth, to stand for truth in your workplace, to stand for truth amongst your friends. God, help us with this. This is the reality of who we are before you, that we are this known and we are this seen. Grant us sight to live in light of your seeing of us. But what about, he's got these scenarios, right? If I can't get out of it in this life, what about death? If I can't get it out of death, what about superpowers? If I can't get it out of his superpowers, what about darkness? If I can't get out of the darkness, let's rewind. What about before I was born? Huh? What about then? Well, he's doing some knitting. The Lord's doing some, he's a knitter. Ladies, holla. (laughs) You and the Lord. Okay, I'm sorry, men too. Third thing we see, you are created by God. You are created by God. You go all the way back to the beginning. He wasn't there. Okay, the darkness, I get it. Superhero, okay, I get it. He already beat me there. Okay, death, yeah, he's there too. Okay, but what about before all of that? For you formed, verse 13, my inward parts. He's talking about the most secret parts of the human body, of your body. When he says inward parts, he's going those most intimate, no one else sees parts of you. God formed those parts. If God formed those parts, it implies he's the maker implies that life all the way back to the womb and all the way to the tomb is his. He is the owner. If he's the maker and the former, he's the owner. And and let's sketch out this embroidery thing for a little bit. Do you guys know God was a sower? God is embroidering every single human who has ever lived. He is weaving together in a beautiful tapestry every single human life from yet unborn, yet unformed, under the control. When it says that you knitted me together in my mother's womb, not only do we have the picture, I don't even know how to knit, here's my knitting. 
okay? Just realized as I was doing it, I, I'm not a big knitter. Grew up with all boys in my home, so like uh, we just appreciated having clothes not knit by our grandparents given to us at Christmas, okay? So, but there's more to it. There's this sovereign protection that's built into the original word itself, knitted together. It means God is sovereignly like a hedge of protection, to use the Christian word, or maybe just use the comic book word of force field. Okay, I'm glad some appreciated that. That's what's going on. The Lord has that child in a force field, protecting him in exactly the ways that God sees fit to protect. He's so blown away by all this, just thinking about this stuff, just dwelling on this stuff alone is enough to bring anyone to worship, which by the way, worship is such a powerful weapon in the hands of the saints. A worshiping a non-worshipping Christian is an oxymoron. We, we have got to be worshipers. And let me consider adding something to your worship categories to celebrate. Let me consider that you would consider your own creation as part of the categories with which you would worship from. How often do you think back and consider your own creation before the Lord? How often would you say you're on a walk praying and you're going, you know what, God, thank you so much for making me and forming me in exactly the way that you did with such an intentional eye to every form and facet of my being. Like, I, I would just admit, I don't do that. And I'm wondering, honestly, if, if we considered our creation more, not only do I think it would be good for our soul's protection, but I think it would be good for protecting souls. If we would be undone by God's hand in our own forming, would we be bold then to stand for every single image bearer? Formed by God. What I'm saying, if you're not catching my drift, is that one of the ways we fight the culture of death is by delighting in our design as Christians. How are you doing with that? Do you delight in your design by God? Or do you spend most, of, here's, what, here's what I bet most of our lives are filled with. We don't delight in God's design of us. We despair over how we were created. We focus on our broken parts of us. And it's not even closely balanced with your being created by the Lord. Delighting in your design. Paul's fired up. Paul's talking about it in such a way where he goes, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I love this because th this term is like on coffee mugs in every Christian home, t-shirts, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, okay? But that's a little bit of a confusing statement, right? Well, what's he saying there? Is he saying we are fearfully and wonderfully made in the sense that fearfully we are possessors of fear because anyone ever been afraid before? Instilled in all of us. Fearful, woo, praise God. Or is it saying you were made in such a way that it excites fear in the beholder of the image bearer of God? It's that. What he is saying is that the human frame is so wonderfully constructed, we should be left trembling before every single image bearer of God. 
We could go into all kinds of details. It doesn't take long, and apparently it doesn't even need an anatomy class based on what he gives us in Psalm 139. But if you just wanted to go through and type literally on Google, it will do the work for you, okay? Any part of your body, right? Pick something you're like, I don't know anything about. What's cool about the ear? You'll be stunned. What's cool about the eye? awesomeness all over the place. The ability to focus. It has 2 million working parts. It can discern 10,000, 10 million colors. 10 million. It's crazy. You type in what's cool about the lungs. You have 300,000 little balloons called alveoli. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. They're like exchange the carbon dioxide for oxygen in your blood. I mean, it's stunning what's going on inside of you and you're not even aware. I'm not. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. All of this is taking place in the secret, he says, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. When he says that, think cave. The womb is like a cave. It's dark in there. But darkness is light to God. God is doing all of this work. What we're getting in this picture is he's an embroiderer, He's knitting. He's organizing every part. It, this is like an artist, you guys. Most artists, when they're creating a masterpiece, will work behind closed doors until that masterpiece is finished. They don't want anyone to see it until it is done. That is the same exact kind of idea. God has the heart of an artist that he's weaving together, he's forming in this amazing tapestry of each individual human being, and they're not coming out until he's ready for them to come out. And then he puts them on display as his masterpiece, God waiting all of those months till he stitched together every last vein, every last artery, every last sinew, every last muscle, every last nerve in the depths of the earth, no less in the womb. Think secret is the idea. This is stunning. We can get around and see some artist flip a portrait upside down or canvas, paint the picture, and then turn it upside down or right side up, and you see it for what it is. He did the whole thing upside down. We're all amazed, right? If you haven't seen that, it's cool. And we can have like this amazing awe at the endoscopic tools where people can like figure out how to get surgery properly done without this massively invasive like open you up and get in there. That's awesome. And God's greatest work is done in the dark without opening anybody up in that sense. Going in there and fashioning it all the way he wants, repair, uh, knitting and shaping and molding his most perfect work in the dark. There's that word woven again. By the way, when you hear the needlework, it should shout something to you from Scripture. It should shout temple. It should shout tabernacle. Do you remember what was all those chapters? <laughs> you remember what, what, what day are we? Yeah, January 23rd, you're almost in Exodus. In your little Bible reading plan, you're like, this is the year. <laughs> you're like, and it's going great. Exodus 1, Exodus 2, which is, you know, yeah, yeah. Then you get to 20, you're like, 10 commandments, done. Then it gets to 24, 
25, 26, then you get into some like knitting instructions and the tabernacle, then Leviticus comes, it's all over, right? I mean, this is, it's that progression, and then we'll come back next year, we're going to get it. This is the year, going to read the Bible, right? We're almost there. But one of the things you know about the tabernacle, one of the things you know about the temple is that there was a veil. There was veils, but there was a veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, and it was knit together, and the language here is meant to scream to us. See, when the tabernacle was built, it was built in a certain way to house a treasure therein. (laughs) When God is knitting us together, he's knitting us together like the materials in the temple or the tabernacle, which is just screaming, we were made for a treasure to dwell inside. There's just something implied in what he is saying that like a divine architect, God is working. He's stitching the temples of our body by his book in which all is written beforehand as to say long before a human life any had ever had any form or shape, unformed substance, that our makeup was in the sketchbook of God's foreknowledge. All of it. Your eyes, he says, saw my unformed substance and in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. This is amazing stuff. God has never abandoned his sewing kit. God did not make Adam and then throw everyone else through a conveyor belt process. God has never ceased to sew a human being together himself. Adam, David, you, everybody, God has kept that intentionality to every single one of those lives. Every life here sewn together by God. There is no mass production with God. There was no industrial revolution. He has continued to shape every part over time by his hand, made by God, days allotted by God, owned by God. And so great is this reality, he says, how vast is the sum of them. This is a masterpiece. Imagine for a second destroying such an exquisite piece of art. If you were to somehow get into the Louvre and destroy, there's a, there's a painting in there. I'm forgetting the name of it. Oh, yeah, that. Yeah, the Mona Lisa, get through like the bulletproof cage that it's in, right? I don't know if you've seen it. It's crazy. And you were to destroy that. You know what they definitely wouldn't let you do? Walk out of that place. They would definitely put you in jail. They would definitely prosecute you for that. What I find so interesting about the way this is described is that God is this artist. We could imagine destroying an exquisite piece of art and the fact that that would land you in jail and how much more an image bear. Why have we lost this logic I think we can regain it even as the church if we can just celebrate God's creation of us. I think David, one of the things he's doing is is he's assessing the fact that, God, I'm frustrated by the way these people are talking about me, but you know them, you know their hearts, and you know me, you know us inside and out. And as he's thinking about it from womb to tomb, he's praising, and then he's rightly prizing. He's prizing what God has made. Because that's what our praise should be doing. When we praise God, we prize what God has made. And when you prize what God has made, you will defend what God has made. And so he's just so clear about this. And and all of this is driving to, for David, 
something that's even applicable for us on a day like Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, which is namely, number four, you are accountable to God. You and I are accountable to God. All this knowledge, all this sight, all this ownership of God over every image bearer from womb to tomb, it naturally implies it. He's made us. We're going to give an account to him. And David welcomes it. David's even praying for it, not because he was faultless himself, but because he wanted no sin to remain. He wanted no wickedness to go unpunished, not just in others, but in himself. And I will just say that this, um, speaking of reading the Bible and just tanking in Exodus at the end, this is one of those Psalms where it's like, we would like this Psalm more if it ended at verse 18. That's why it's like, okay, I would put that on a coffee mug, but I really don't like 19, I don't like 20, I don't like 21, I don't like 22. Can, I, can we Thomas Jefferson this thing, you know, cut that part out, and then we'll go back to search me, oh God, because apparently we're okay with that. Listen to these next few verses. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. You're like, what? You know us, you see us, you've created us, kill the wicked, God. Right? This is not like a, I could just see like a women's ministry tea and you're like, yeah, not Psalm 139. Like I brought my friends today. This just makes God look bad. Or David. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Imagine how that would surface in a small group. Here are my thoughts. I hate them with a complete hatred. Am I not clear? I loathe them. I loathe them. I looked that word up in the dictionary today. I wanted something stronger, right? Here's why he's saying that. You know this. Sin doesn't always go rightly punished. Certainly not in this life. Far from it. Sin is celebrated. Sin is paraded in the streets. Sin is even encouraged. And you know that the law doesn't always bear its weight as it should and protect the rights of the vulnerable or we mix up who the vulnerable actually are. Let me just be clear. The vulnerable, one absolute category of the vulnerable is the unborn, for sure. And we've somehow forgot that. And maybe as Christians, we're just like so stuck as to knowing what to do that we're like, I don't know what to do about this. And it doesn't seem like the Lord's doing much yet, so we're really going to have to, listen, the Lord is not passive towards evil. The Lord is not indifferent towards evil, and you and I must not be indifferent towards it either. Even praying that we would share God's heart in our hate in the right way. 
This is a category you may have never heard a pastor say should even be part of your wavelength, but there's actually a place to live where you can sense about someone both a desire for their salvation and a hatred for what they stand for. And those aren't like, well, if I have that one, here's where the hatred goes wrong. Spurgeon hits it really well when he talks about this verse. He says, to hate a man for his own sake would be wrong. But to hate a man because he is the foe of all goodness and the enemy of all righteousness is nothing more nor less than an obligation, end quote. That from the Prince of Preachers. That we must hate what they stand for when they stand for the murdering of the vulnerable, of those who cannot protect themselves. We have to stand for what God will certainly not tarry on forever, that his image bearers be slain by the wicked, for example. And so we have to find a way to actually have that righteous indignation in the right ways. But here we go. So, so if you're going to like, okay, I'm going to step into that and really hate the way God hates evil, then what you have is the thing that catches you so you don't go off the rails with your hatred is verse 23. Okay? It hems you in. So that hatred expressed through sinful hearts and heads doesn't get ahead of ourselves. And he says, search me, oh God. In my loathing, my complete hatred of evil and evil people, Search me, O God, and know my heart. He says, try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If there is some habit, if there is some inconsistency, if there's some cowardice, expose it in me, Lord. Here's the thing. Expose it in me, Lord. It's already exposed to you. We don't want to be in the dark about something God already knows. And here's the good news. Where sin is exposed, salvation is near. And so you can sit in the heaviness of your sin and it can absolutely bog you down and it can overwhelm you and it can enslave you and it can keep you in fear and not wanting anything to do with the Lord. Or when your sin is exposed, knowing that God already knows, don't you want to know so that you can take your sin to the one who will deal with it for you? So you could take your sin to the one who died on a cross to pay the penalty for all of your sin? you got to do something with your sin. We all have it. You're either going to hold on to it and believe you won't give an account for your life, or you're going to do this and just chuck it at Jesus by faith. Trusting that when he died on the cross, he died to pay the penalty for your sin. Not just the sin you've committed up to this point, but all of the sin you will ever commit in your lifetime by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are believing that God sent his son, the second person of the Trinity, to take on human flesh and he lived the life I didn't live. He got the straight A's I didn't give, get in this life. And then he died because the penalty for sin is death. Because our sin is against an eternal God, we deserve to die an eternal death. And Jesus stepped in, dies in our place for sinners like you and me. So we either hold on to our sin and we'll be held accountable to it. Or we, by faith, trust in Jesus. God, by that faith in 
credits to us in an amazing, mysterious way the righteousness of Jesus and all of our sin is credited to him. And so then when God looks at us, he sees his son. And when he looks at Jesus, he sees you. Sin, when it's exposed, can be owned, can be grieved over, and can be fled into the arms of Jesus where alone and nowhere else is there forgiveness for injustice, for our apathy, for our unbelief, for our selfishness, for our sinfulness. And in Jesus Christ, we then have by his spirit dwelling inside of us the ability to walk in the newness of life. He would describe it as the way everlasting. We would describe it as the new creation life, that eternal life that is ours in Christ Jesus. And so let us be a people who understand the joy of knowing God through Jesus Christ, such that our sin is known before him, we gladly confess it and experience the gift of repentance, that we might walk continuously in that newness of life, and that we might stand and consider the things God has done for us, that we might defend because we delight in all God's done. Let us stand here, loved ones, as we think about the sanctity of human life, both now and into the future. Let's pray. Father, it's uh, a great joy to see out of your word so many great texts, so many great concepts. Father, I pray that you would bring these truths home into every human heart. You would help them wrestle with the text. You would help them to see it for what it is. God, give us a delight in the way that you have designed things that we might stand in defense of those who need it most. And I pray that the lost in hearing the word and knowing about Jesus now and recognizing that they have sinned before you would run to Jesus. Their hearts would be melted and drawn to you. And by repentance and faith, they would lay hold of the eternal life that is theirs. In Jesus' name, amen.